I exist and I am public so that you can have somebody to look at and say, it's gonna be okay. Like she did it, I can do it. Coming up on It's Not Human Sexuality. Every person actually has their own individual relationship to their past, right? And their past selves, we all grow and we all change and we all learn. And sometimes we look back and you're like, ugh, that person I used to be wasn't, I'm not proud of that person or, or whatever. It hits a little bit differently, I think, potentially when you're trans. I am a trans person and a lesbian, but also I'm white and I grew up appearing to be a cisgender heterosexual male. Right? So my privilege growing up in the world was pretty dramatic. Commanders deserve to have better guidance so they can execute better. I feel that. It is often easier for trans men to pass in the gender binary. I think that they also suffer from a lack of representation, right? Because um, like there are numerous prominent trans women in politics, in media, in, in a lot of areas, in science, in, in a lot of areas of life. You're in the midst of puberty and midlife crisis all wrapped up into one, and it's hard to manage that. Welcome to the latest episode of It's Not Human Sexuality. I'm Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B. And I'm Mandy Johnson. We're really excited to have Olivia Stelic here with us again for part two. So as a recap, Captain Olivia Stelic is an active duty Army officer currently serving as a physical therapist for a brigade combat team at Fort Carson. She is a graduate of West Point and Ranger School, a former infantry platoon leader, and a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. She's also a proud transgender woman. In February of 2019, she testified about her experience as a transgender woman in the Army before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel. She has since continued to advocate for her trans military peers, as well as conduct education and advocacy for the LGBTQ community locally and around the country. Olivia and I crossed paths in my other life. Something that our listeners might know now, but I'll reiterate, is that uh, I own and direct the only cryobank in Colorado called Cryogam. It was through Cryogam that I met her. She has decided to store sperm for additional potential use. This was a really big deal because what you don't know is that Liv had transitioned about three years earlier. This meant that she had been on high doses of estrogen to override her body's production of testosterone. During this process, there are so many biological changes that occur, one of which is the body's production of sperm. When her partner at the time asked her if she would be willing to stop the estrogen to see if her sperm production would return, she agreed. We explored that process in episode one, and we're going to continue with her story today. Welcome, Liv. It's great to have you back. It's good to be here. So if you remember, in our first episode, we talked about your life growing up, West Point, infantry platoon, leader, married one son, then your process of transitioning while still being in the military, then divorce, a new partner, decision to stop estrogen, and to store sperm. But now we're going to follow up because a lot has happened since then. A couple of the biggies, change of administration, Biden's now president, the military ban on transgender folks has been rescinded, and you're single again. So let's dive in. Yeah, let's. 
Okay. So let's start with the rescinding of the transgender ban in the military. That was a really big day. Walk us through that day for you. Yeah, it, you're right. I mean, it was a it was a really big day. In some ways, it's um, well, it's wild because the first time the ban got repealed, you know, was this. It was the first time, and so it was this really kind of big, momentous um, thing that that we really in the days leading up to you kind of knew that you thought it was going to happen, but you weren't quite sure exactly what it looked like. And then it was this, I mean, I, I cried in my garage and like, that's where I was when I found I was working out. And then the, you know, I basically kept refreshing my screen to wait for that speech or announcement to drop. And it finally did. And, um, it was a little bit different this time in some ways, but in some ways it was the same, you know, we had some advance notice that, um, because of some folks working at higher levels uh, than I work at, they they had some kind of advance notice that it that was likely to be part of the agenda on the first hundred days. Um, that at least there would be an executive order and an, or an announcement that this was going to be a policy that got changed. Um, so we kind of knew, and there was and there was this: what day is it going to be? How long are we going to have to wait? What's it going to look like? Um, and so there was this anticipation building up to that, and then. And in our, you know, we've talked about Sparta, the trans military organization nonprofit that um, that I work with that kind of manages the communications piece with all of this and also works with all of the service members um, kind of as a resource um, and also as an advocacy policy group. So um, we basically kind of started having discussions about what this looked like and and things that we wanted to talk about because we knew that this once once it changed that it would hit the media pretty quickly and dramatically and would be something that would you know at least would be talked about or that we would need to be able to talk about publicly on the record um, at least for a day or two you know the news cycle is relatively short but um, so we kind of prepared for all of that and and then it changed and it was a little bit less momentous, I think, than the first time because it, you know, we'd already seen it happen once before. And there was maybe more of an assumption that it was going to change. Um, it wasn't quite as unexpected or, or it wasn't quite as much of an unknown, you know, when he was the president elect and even when he was just campaigning, uh, President Biden made that very clear that this was going to be a policy agenda. And so I think we all kind of knew that it was going to happen to some extent. Um, but it's still this pretty marked thing where for the last two years, folks haven't been able to transition, um, right? Like I've been okay. I, I've been allowed to continue my transition and continue medication and all of that, but you could not join the military if you had any history of being trans and you couldn't actually go through a medical transition in the military, you couldn't, the words I like to use are that you couldn't get appropriate medical care for being trans, right? Like there's a very clear medical standard of care for being transgender. And it was, you could stay in the military, but you can't get treatment for this medical condition. So, so, so to be clear on that, if someone had begun their transitioning while in the military, they had to stop transitioning to stay in the military or they had to pay out of pocket for their care? No. So if you had a diagnosis of gender dysphoria on the record before April 12th of 2019, regardless of whether you had come out publicly, if that diagnosis was in your military medical record by that date, 
you are allowed to transition or you're allowed to start or continue transition. Um, if you did not have a diagnosis before that date, that was the effective date of the policy. So if you went to your psychologist on April 13th of 2019 and said, Hey, I'm trans. I need to start transition. The one day difference in you coming out meant that you could not proceed with transition. You could not go through medical transition, whether you paid for it or not. All right. So in looking at that, what do you have? It really doesn't affect you anyway now because you were already in in that process but people in you we just talked about what that looked like do you feel like this is going to change more people applying or entering or enlisting and are they going to feel safer oh hmm. that's that's a sticky question i think that there are certainly people um, that want to come into the military and are going to do that now that they can again. So there are some policy questions that still have to be answered. None of the services have published new guidelines yet. We just have this executive order that says trans people have to be allowed to serve and to enlist, but there hasn't been an actual publication of new guidance yet. I presume that that is because they are not going to just revert to the 2016 policy that allowed people to serve. I expect that the delay is due to them actually rewriting policy to something new entirely, which I think is probably a good thing. Um, I think that that policy could be improved. I, th I think people will come in that w could not have come in before, and I think people will be able to start their transitions that have already come out in the last two years and gotten their diagnosis, but haven't been allowed to start hormones or work on any of their legal documentation change. As to whether or not anybody feels safer, um, I don't, I mean, certainly there is a cultural difference and a shift in uh, the values that this administration holds compared to our previous administration. There's a clear value on, um, particularly on trans people when you look at, you know, the president's acceptance speech and all of that. But um, in terms of specifically military folks, trans military folks feeling safer, I don't, I don't actually think that any of us do because this still isn't law, right? It's just the result of this president's executive order and Who's to say that in four years, it doesn't switch back again if we don't publish, you know, or if we don't pass the Equality Act or some other version of law around this, then it's subject to change every few years. That was going to be my next lead in. Are we going to, is this going to be a ping pong ball that we just hit back and forth, back and forth? One, one administration does this, the other administration undoes it, undoes it, then we undo it, then we, you know, um, it could, it's exhausting. And so... It, that must be difficult on some level for the military to say, well, what, what, are we, what does this look like and what can we put in place? Because people might just be waiting for the next shift and say, I'm not going right. to get on board because I'm going to wait and see what four years brings me. Or right. I'm not going to enlist because I, I don't, it doesn't feel secure. It doesn't feel secure in the concept right. of policy. Not even that it not absolutely. even that you might not feel safe. It just doesn't feel secure. You know, like Right. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think I mean, it, 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 it was like that in the workplace, right? And we had we saw that right. in the workplace with with people who um were, you know, sexual minorities. We saw that 
in the workplace right. even. We saw that in renting and adopting, you know, until right. it started to become like, you can't do that, <laughs> you know. Right. And that became more secure, like with marriage equality and those things. Then those right. things became solid. And I think that's what you're expressing, right? We need something like that. So the military has something to say, okay, this is where we have to be because this is where the standard is. That's what you're correct. That's your point is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think it's actually a fascinating question in terms of, I mean, we could dive into civil military discourse and all sorts of things, but I think, you know, from just from a national security standpoint, from a, how we take care of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardians, um, it becomes this, how do you explain away as senior defense officials that you're going to have this flip-flopping policy? I expect that at some point, if the politics keep changing every four years, if the administration keeps changing dramatically, that at some point, somebody at a senior level in the defense department will say, hey, I understand that we have a difference in politics, but not only is it not good for our trans troops, not only is it uh, essentially it's unfair, it's bad policy, it's not providing adequate medical care, but also it casts doubt on who's the next group that we're just going to say, ah, you know, they've been okay, but we've decided that they're too much of a liability now. Um, and they won't be a liability, whatever group that is, right? Just like right. trans people aren't a liability, but, right. but that's the whole thing is the data says that we're not and yet policy has not always reflected the data. So I think I, it's a fascinating question if it would be more fascinating if it were not quite so painful and scary, but. Right. Yeah. If we were talking about, you know, ex lab rats instead of people. Right. Thing, exactly. Right? And, and it wasn't, and I don't mean it that in a derogatory way. I no, just, no, it, exactly that. If we were studying a different cohort of beings, you know, correct. And, um, that's what I mean. It must feel um, like you said. It was a it was a great day. I know you felt elated, sort of a oh, and a, right. a collective exhale. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. exhaling. We can relax a little bit. But uh, what what does it mean in the long haul? So, have you been contacted to testify again or to be on a committee to say these are the things that I think. We're doing really well. And these are the things where I think we need some work. We've done, um, I, I mean, I've done a little bit of work kind of behind the scenes with Sparta, our, our kind of policy nonprofit. And I think um, I haven't specifically been involved with any policy making at the Department of Defense level yet. Um, I know that it is occurring. Um, I mean, that's public information at this point, right? The Secretary of Defense said we're conducting a review for the next 60 days and all of that. So they're going through this. And um, I, I know that different folks at senior levels have reached out to some other people to help build the new policy. Um, so I, I know it's happening, but I don't have any kind of visibility into what that looks like. Before all this happened, we we kind of took up a bunch of information from everybody uh, involved and and said, hey, what what do you see as the problems and what do you see as the things that have gone really well? And so we kind of collated all of that data, all of that feedback, and I suspect that somebody has been able to, you know, present that to the appropriate parties that are responsible for this. But I'm not actually aware of, like, I don't have visibility at that level. I'm hoping that people on this 
task force or committee or <laughs> whatever we want to call it are represented by trans folks? We can only hope. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like uh, nothing about us without us, you know, right. and I think that's a really important distinction. And I hope that, I mean, you know, the military has gone through a lot of changes. They have, they have. You know, don't ask, yeah. don't tell. And, and I, I, we know they're capable of it. So let's keep that ball rolling and, and, and have it. To me, it, it just is exhausting to keep one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Right. And I'm sure it's Absolutely. incredibly exhausting for you. So, yes. and, I'm, and I'm not even, <laughs> it's. Yeah, anyway. I, will, I will spend far less energy spinning my wheels now, right? Like there's this, the last two years have been this kind of, you know, because people find me they reach out to me and it's this how do I go, how do I move forward what do I do what am I allowed to do and all of there was just a lot of work trying to find answers that weren't really there and to eventually come back and say well really you can't actually do anything um, until the policy changes so now I expect that people will still reach out and I will still have that role as a mentor in the trans military community and kind of a subject matter expert but but there should be much more clear policy so that I can help the soldiers trying to transition and command, right? Because that's part of my, I'm bought into the army at this point, right? Like I'm a career army officer. And so I also have an investment in the function of the organization itself, not just in the individuals. And I think, you know, going back to the reason that Ash Carter changed the policy in the first place was we deserve, commanders deserve to have better guidance so they can execute better. And I think that's, I feel that. Yeah, I mean, all that's encouraging. And I think it's hard, you know, uh, I admire you for wanting to stay and stick around and stay in, in the system. Because some, you know, it's not always easy, right? <laughs> and so it might be easier not doing that. But then again, you obviously make a big difference and you can make a big difference for other people who haven't gone through what you've gone through and you can help ease their path a little bit. And that's that's the good news. Yeah, I think I have, at, at least at this point, I think I still have more to offer inside than outside the organization. Moving on to, um, I kind of want to back... Um, backpedal a little bit on our first uh, conversation with you regarding storing your fertility prior to coming off your estrogen. So you transitioned, you went off your estrogen, uh, estrogen, your testosterone kicked in a little bit, stored a little bit of sperm, and now you have that. Uh, how do you feel about that now? I mean, <clears throat> what does that feel for you? Does it, does it, is it a tug of war for you to say, wow, that's part of my life I don't want to be reminded about? Or are you glad it's there? Oh, no, I'm definitely glad it's there. I don't, you know, I've, um, everybody has their own, every, well, every person actually has their own individual relationship to their past, right? And their past selves, we all grow and we all change and we all learn. And sometimes we look back and you're like, oh, that person I used to be wasn't, I'm not proud of that person or, or whatever. Um, and it hits a little bit differently, I think, potentially when you're trans. Um, but I have always chosen to make that all part of my story. Um, you know, my Facebook still has all of my old pictures. I haven't pulled anything down. Um, like my social media presence doesn't, it's not curated of any prior things. And some of that is because 
given what I did in the army and when I did it, uh, it would have been difficult for me to hide that professionally. Um, it, it is almost always apparent to people, um, people who, who have been around in the military long enough. It's apparent to them, you know, to new folks, it's not obvious, but to anybody who has been in the round, who has been around in the military as long as I have or longer, it doesn't take a lot, even just looking at my uniform for them to make some quick connections and figure out, you know, if they know about trans people at all, they can pretty much put two and two together. Um, so to some extent, you know, that decision I think was made a little bit for me based on my prior career and then all of the advocacy work. It It's just part of what I'm doing. And I, you know, like, it's part of my story. It's part of who I was. Uh, it's part of who I am, the way I grew up. I think I, you know, I was talking about this to, to a group of peers the other day that I have this very small slice of a minority pie, right? Like I am a trans person and a lesbian, but also I'm white and I grew up appearing to be a cisgender heterosexual male, right? So my privilege growing up in the world was pretty dramatic and that affects so much of how I see the world now. And it's, there's a lot of unlearning to do um, and recognizing how much I still don't know or see, like just because I'm part of this minority community doesn't mean I have any visibility by my, without doing the work of what it means to be a different kind of minority in this country. And so I think it's important for that to be part of my story. And it's a reminder to me of where I came from and, and who I want to be and grow into. Um, so no, it doesn't, I don't think it bothers me at all. It's, I'm actually glad that it's there. Like, I think it was really important for me to do that. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'll have any more kids, but it was important to, Yeah. like, I'm glad. Good. It's interesting because, you know, we see, um, quite a few people uh, wanting to coming in for that very reason, and some of the some of the people we see are young, younger. You know, they're maybe even in their teens or yeah. their early twenties. Yeah. And I had one person; uh, they were really struggling with this decision about whether or not they wanted to move forward. And they were at their appointment, and they were explaining to me that it just didn't feel authentic to them. They they felt that if they were storing their reproductive potential that they were in their mind hanging on to a life that they don't embrace and they couldn't separate that and i and it was interesting and i said and, and then they said you know if i want children i'll adopt and i said that's fine i mean you can leave think about it you know come back wh whatever you want to do we're here for you but i i'd never heard that i mean i've heard a lot of things in 30 years and i never heard that for them, it wasn't a, they couldn't disconnect this thought of storing sperm and transitioning as being a part of them. I mean, I think I, I have not heard that either, and it doesn't resonate with me at all. But I think that's one of the kind of beautiful and potentially painful things about transition and truly about life. But everybody does transition differently, right? Like there are people out there who transition who never are on meds of any kind and they're, you know, just their genetic makeup potentially allows them to, to pass through life as, as, you know, 
their chosen identity or or they don't care you know they are able to somehow move through life as themselves without being concerned about society's you know view of the gender binary and i have massive amounts of respect for that uh, that doesn't work for me you know i have a very specific way that i want to go through this and and i don't think it's the same for anybody else because everybody's the things that they struggle with the things that matter are different. I had a conversation with somebody the other night about like my voice, right? Because we know testosterone affects your vocal cords permanently, um, you know, without surgery, you can't reverse that. And so the voice that people hear me use now is not the voice that people heard me use five years ago before our transition. And the further I get into a intellectually demanding conversation, the more my voice uh, deepens in pitch because it's hard for my brain to hold on to all of that at the same time. Um, but this is a place that's comfortable-ish, right? Like I still most frequently get misgendered over the phone um, and I don't have any desire to increase that frequency in real life, you know, in, in person. And so I keep my voice here, even though it's not the way my voice sounds quote naturally or if i'm not trying to hold it at this pitch um, or around this general pitch so but that's some people don't care and they can do that and that's great and i don't i just was gonna say i really liked how you compared that to like we all change and grow and have different identities and there's lots of people in the world that that don't want to have anything to do with who they were in their twenties and don't want anybody right? to associate them with that. And, um, you know, and, and oh, I'm not who I used to be. And, and then right? there's other people that just embrace that and let that be like, this is part of who I am and I am who I am because of all of that. Right. Um, but I, I liked the way you, you did that because it made it so much more relatable for people who haven't transitioned, you know, there's parts of my identity I definitely don't want people to know about from my past that that I wouldn't want to hold on to, but other pieces, like you said, that I'm real proud of that make me who I am despite what they are. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't want to necessarily hide from that. So I, I just appreciate the way you put that. Yeah, right. And again, it's different for us because we didn't transition, but we did grow as people like we changed and I remember lecturing in class about marriage and you know it's uh like my mother used to say it's like brushing your teeth <laughs> it's daily and some days you just don't feel like doing it yeah um, and uh but I also would say you know I got married at 24 and I I would ask my students ask me what I knew about marriage then and they'd say what'd you know and I'd say nothing I knew nothing <laughs> and they say what do you know now and I go nothing <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's a fickle beast you know uh, but the person that uh, Bill married you know thirty uh, what is it thirty seven years ago I'm not that person yeah. I, I'm a part of that person uh, there's right. a core of me that will always be there right. but I'd like to think that I'm a better person <laughs> right right you know? and so it's but I'm not. Uh, you know, uh, but I'm not judged on that. Like, I have a, I think sometimes my voice goes pretty low too, but I'm not misgendered. And I find that interesting because I would, first of all, I don't really gender people over the phone. I just don't even think about it. But I'm trying to figure out how that would happen to you because I don't, I just don't listen for that when I'm speaking to people. I don't listen for gender. Well, I think it happens 
it's not that people are listening for it. It's that we can't help it, right? Like we, we, we unconsciously gender people almost immediately when we see them Mm -hmm. and when we hear them, it's not that we're looking to, it's that we're trying to understand subconsciously how to relate to those people. And so, you know, so we talk about, and Julia Serrano does a great job of talking about this in her book, whipping girl, but, um, one of the first things that we look at for people is facial hair. Facial hair is this massive gender indicator that we do, you know, in, in microseconds when we see somebody um, that helps to place people in this, you know, category in the world. Um, so that becomes difficult if you're a person who has a hairy face and doesn't want that, it, you know, that's contrary to the gender you're trying to present. Or, or it can be the opposite that if you're, unable to grow facial hair and you're trying to present more masculine and you have a face that does not appear that way, that can be problematic, right? So we we tend to subconsciously put people into genders. And like, I don't ever think it's malicious. Same thing on the phone that if I call somebody and they don't know me, they their brain says there's some cut point at which pitch below that I'm going to call somebody sir and pitch above that I'm going to call somebody ma'am and it's not for every person that pitch point is different probably based on their life experience you know if they've grown up in an area or around people where women have really high voices or really low voice right like there's so much that it goes into that but I think it's just a subconscious thing when you have to call somebody something I guess uh, using your name would be appropriate. <laughs> right. It, some people don't, I don't always introduce myself with my name oh, I see. and that's, okay. so that's right. There's, there's, gotcha. and that, so that's a factor too. I could do that more. Now I'm curious if I, because I hadn't thought about that until you just said that. Um, maybe <laughs> I, I would I'm change things. Sure yeah. Maybe I just answer the phone. Certain. This is Olivia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you are. Um, Interesting. I'm, now yeah. I'm going to try that, and I'm curious to see if that changes the incidence of this. You sh- you should because I will. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, now I'm curious. I mean, we've talked about all of this being an experiment anyway, so <laughs> that's just horrible. <laughs> but Life is uh, an experiment. Come on, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Life is an yeah. experiment. Uh, you know, it's the whole process of. Um, language and dress and uh, pronouns and uh, like you're talking about voice pitch and you talked about facial hair which is really interesting because a lot of people will look for an Adam's apple right they'll look mm, here yeah um, but I like my husband doesn't have very much facial hair and uh, our son doesn't and I remember yeah. him saying, when am I going to start shaving? And we're like, mm, never. So uh, it's never going to happen for you. But it, it, so that brings me to the to the other part of transitioning in the military, which would be um, female to male in, in the, if you're speaking in the binary. So yeah. when you have people transitioning female to male, do you think that's a harder transition? I mean, I'm not trying to, I don't think there's a hierarchy of hard. Hard is hard. Right, but yeah. As far as it, uh, maybe being accepted into the clan kind of thing, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm just curious. I don't. That's a really. I would. I would have to. I, I don't. I don't know how you answer the, that question. Is it harder? 
you know, I don't, I think the challenges are different, obviously. Um, I think that one of the things is that there is a more significant lack of trans masculine representation in the world, um, at large, just in, in general. And so I think that in some ways, for the most part, it is often easier for trans men to pass in the gender binary. Um, I think that they also suffer from a lack of representation, right? Because um, like there are numerous prominent trans women in politics, in media, in, in a lot of areas, in science, in, in a lot of areas of life, there are, um, you know, numerous, numerous might be strong word, but they exist and they're fairly public, um, in those roles. And this goes back to growing up with privilege, right? And, Right. So if you think about people who are trans women who exist in senior places in the world, in media or in government or in business, they were raised as men, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was. And so there's this, they were taught to be driven and passionate and whatever. And those characteristics were valued in them and promoted. Um, and, and whereas a trans masculine person likely, you know, was raised as a woman and thus more likely. And again, we're, we're broad brush. We're generalizing here, yes, but, of course. but generally speaking, women in our country until quite recently, and in some cases, not even now have been not encouraged, right? We don't reward the same traits in women and in young girls that we do in boys, right? Competitiveness or aggressiveness, right? We talk about the language that we use around that right. for men and yes. women is very different. And so I think that's part of the disparity in not seeing significant transmasculine represent representation at high levels. Not that it doesn't exist necessarily, but it's... And to some extent, there may be a, if you are able to pass more easily, that is less significant. It's not as media worthy or something, which is sad. I think it's problematic for transmasculine people because representation matters no matter who you are. Right. One of the most famous uh, transmasculine person I can think of is Chaz Bono. And mm -hmm. um, so that, um, that was a, that was a big a big deal in fact i even think um they're in my, in our textbook as an example uh but you're right i mean it's it's um it would probably be i think even harder it, it might even be you might even have the concept of, of uh stature like for instance just physical presence right. you might be right. shorter you know you might not be as big right um, and and we all know some how society looks at that, right? Um, yeah, so it's significant. It is significant, and I and I think it's interesting that you point out that you you know you were raised with privilege, right? I, I was, but I'm not trans, A lot. and but you had yeah, but it what an interesting move for you to go from all that privilege <laughs> to being a woman. I mean. I, some people might consider that a step down. 
And well, so, I mean, I had a friend who laughed at me early on. She was like, you have no idea what you're getting into. And I was like, it's fine. And then like a year later, I called her and I was like, Lisa, I had no idea. And she just laughed and cried a little bit and laughed some more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of uh, another friend of mine who grew up on a farm and transitioned later in life. I mean, probably late 40s, early 50s, finally transitioned. Yeah. And uh, she would tell me, oh, man, I went in to get my car fixed and they're talking to me like I'm an idiot. And she's like, you know what? I used to take apart tractors and put them back together. So can you just not? <laughs> yep. Sweetheart this and honey that. Yeah. And like, oh. yeah. like, just I have a name just because I'm a woman doesn't mean you have to assume I don't know anything. Like, yeah. It's yep. a whole thing. It is the whole thing. Something that I probably ignore a lot because I don't, I don't care, you know. Um, because I was really, I was raised probably super non-binary, and probably I am very androgynous. I feel, and I had a lot of privilege too because my parents were like, "Do whatever you want to do, yeah. you know, study whatever you want to study." Yeah, there's, you know, you're the only person standing in your way, and then. But like you said, if you throw in this other concept of these young kids growing up who don't, who probably know who they are, but can't feel like safe to express who they are, I, I wonder sometimes how they get out of bed. I mean, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing sure. this, right? Is, is right. so that there is representation moving forward to say that somebody who was me 20 years ago like, and just like, I don't know how to be, I can't be who I am because of the cards I was dealt. Like, no, I exist and I am public so that you can have somebody to look at and say, it's going to be okay. Like she did it. I can do it. Exactly. Right. And I think that's really good. How do you feel about it? If somebody says to you, I did, I couldn't, I didn't know. I couldn't tell or really? <laughs> I mean, um, I, I know they probably mean it as a compliment. Yeah, it's often not in the trans community is not, you know, taken well. My, I, I probably differ a bit or, or my perception on things is, um, well, hmm, I tend to be fairly, I'm going to use the word political, but I don't mean political parties. I mean that I navigate systems well. Um, I understand something for whatever reason about who I am, um, my personality. I don't know what it is, but I'm able to move through systems and structures and groups of people and organizations in a fairly smooth manner. And I think one of the ways that I do that, one of the things that's really important is this having grace for people. Um, I generally think people are trying to do the right thing. They're not being hostile. They're not being mean. Maybe they don't know some things, but like 99% of the time, that is my assumption. I don't think I'm right that much of the time, <laughs> but, but that is my going in position is that until you do, do something to prove to me that you're trying to be hostile or, you know, get under my skin. I just assume that you don't know. 
that that's not an okay thing to say or not an appropriate thing to say. And even if I'm wrong, what do I lose by being gentle in my response, right? Like being gentle really just diffuses even the people who are trying to get under your skin. If you're like, oh, hey, let me tell you about this or thank you or right, like, or if you mean something as an insult, but I'm, you know, I couldn't tell, oh, thank you. And then you move on, right? There's a, I don't have to fix anything for anybody. Like I'm just going to exist and you know, like I'm going to try to, I don't think anybody's mind was ever changed by arguing at them. And so I'm just like, I'm going to be here and exist and live my own beautiful life. And if you want to ask about it and talk about it, I'm happy to. And even if you're not actually interested, I'm still happy to engage because you might change your mind that way, but you're not going to change your mind. If I like come across strong, it's a lot of things to override for how most people in this country were raised to get to like, oh yeah, this is totally normal and fine, right? Like it's a lot. I recognize that it's a lot to ask. I think it's okay to ask that, but it also means that I can be gentle about asking that. I, th- I think that's, I think that's a, a good place to be. I mean, I, otherwise, you know, as we always say, anger consumes the vessel that carries it. And I say that almost every day for obvious reasons. <laughs> Yeah. Because I'm having one of those days and I'm like, wait, hold on. You know, yeah. I got to stop drinking the poison. I think it's age related to mm, or yeah. generational. Um, mm-hmm. I, and, and again, I have limited, limited experience in this, but a lot of, of my friends that are trans that are older are, seem, seem to be more mellow, just sort of like they feel better. They, they don't, they're just like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm just finally glad I'm I'm living an authentic life and I'm okay with yeah. that. Yeah. And maybe and sometimes in the younger and not the younger younger generation like not the teenagers, but that middle age where they're just kind of angry. Like, yeah. and, and there's some anger there which there is. is absolutely justified. Absolutely. But but it's hard to almost have a conversation to get past that to find out how can we fix this, you know. Yep. Yeah. Do you do you agree? I mean, do you see that kind of age break thing? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so two things. One is I want to caveat that I think it's also one of the things about privilege is that my life, my livelihood, none of my existence is at stake. Um, I don't have to fight for those things. And so I can afford to be gentle. There are people out there who don't have that luxury. And so I just try to be aware of that when I say that I think this is the way to do this. It's the way for me to do this, and I can do that. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things that happens, um, I've actually talked to this, about this a lot um, and thought about it a lot, is that there's, I think, when you're a you know, I'm 34. When you're a young 30s, potentially late 20s trans person, you have this weird confluence of events where you didn't get to go through your normal puberty and become and try on all of the things that most of your peers did. And so you're doing that again in your 20s or 30s. But at the same time, Now you have the self-awareness to process all of those changes and all of your peers are now in this kind of happy, content midlife, like, you know, 
kind of pre midlife where they have their you know their young school age kids like they're kind of stuck in their their and I don't mean stuck in a bad way but they're in their marriages they're in their routines they're kind of developing their careers they haven't hit their midlife crisis but trans people aren't there right they're in their midlife crisis in their late 20s early 30s so you have this puberty and midlife crisis stuck together you're hitting that midlife crisis early because you're aware that like I'm directing the whole future of my life where you're not aware of that when you're a teenager making decisions about your future. You're just like, ah, whatever. Like, even if you're making big decisions, you're still like, ah, I'll go to this college and get this degree. And like, I don't really know exactly. Even if you have an idea of what you're going to do, you don't really sense the big picture depth of the things that you're creating. But when you're 28, 29, 30, 32, whatever, you're aware at that point that the decisions you make are going to affect the rest of your life. And so you're in the midst of puberty and midlife crisis all wrapped up into one. And it's hard to manage that. Yeah. This is just my take. (laughs) But I think that's that's an interesting perspective. And I think that's fair. Plus, you know, especially if you had the influx of hormones, right, added to that. And so, right, I mean, going through puberty in your late 20s, twice. (laughs) So you went through it twice. (laughs) It's the whole thing. Three times now. (laughs) Teenager, once with estrogen. Again, technically, actually, we're on time number four now, back on estrogen. Zero stars. Don't recommend. Twice is enough. (laughs) Zero stars. Don't recommend it for sure. Not four times. So kind of leads me to um, what, what do you, what, what, what's, what's next for you? Do you, do you think you might want more uh, biological children or, you know, what's, what's next for you in, in the big picture of things, not just reproductively? Yeah. I, you know, I, I have no idea about more kids. I'm not, uh, certainly not in the exact place in life I am. Um, that would be, like I'm not ever going to be the person that has kids by herself, right? Like that's not, uh-huh. um, that's not, I know some people do that and hats off to them. It's amazing. Um, but that's not ever where I will be. If that happens, it will be in the context of, of some kind of family structure, um, whatever that would look like. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't know exactly. I think that, um, one of the things that I have decided is that probably I'm going to run for office someday, um, which feels like a pretty big thing to say out loud. Uh, but, but I think that that or some kind of nonprofit advocacy work, I just think there's more for me to do in the world. Like I am not done in the army yet. I am not done with my work in the army. I think there is more for me to do both, as a trans person in the army and as a physical therapist in the army, I think there's, there's more and I'm not done and I have things I want to do still, but I think I've started to look, you know, in theory I could retire in seven years from the army, which sounds ridiculous, but wow. Um, right. I know it's cause I'm old. It's cause I wear skinny jeans well. and put my hair to the side <laughs> and use emojis. Yeah, wear straight leg pants. <laughs> right. Exactly. But you know, I think, I think that that's, Um, I think that that's something that's in my future is that I want to do more public policy work that I have, um, 
I have stuff to offer there. And I think that that at some level running for office, nonprofit work, I don't know exactly yet what that looks like, but that's, I think that's maybe one day the next thing. Well, if you were staying in Colorado and you're running for office, I would vote for you. Yes. Maybe I'll come so back to Colorado and okay. run for office. I'll run your campaign. Hire, I'll, I'll be retired by then and I'd be happy to run your campaign. Excellent. <laughs> I, I have a lot of people that have, have said, come back to Colorado and we will help your campaign. So I might come back here. You never know. <laughs> All right. Well, now we have it on tape. Yeah. Well, thanks again for giving us another opportunity to hear more of your story. It's it's for me it's just I, so enjoyable and I think so informative and I know so helpful for a lot of people. And again, thank you so much. Yes, yeah, thank you so, so much. Fun. What a great perspective to hear. I'm glad we get to do this. I'm glad you guys yeah. have this. Yes, we do too. We just need to make sure other people know it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, everything takes time. And... Uh, you still owe me a coffee, so we'll get. We'll I get do, together and for we that. will. Yes. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. Good night. You too. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun talking to Olivia again tonight. I uh, I really did like the what she was saying about um, you know how how everybody changes and grows and. And can let go, you know, not like who they were in the past and want to completely let go of those identities. I I just felt like that was such a good way to get to, to have so many more people relate to that kind of idea and situation of wanting to let go of your past. Right. Um, obviously, uh, transitioning is is probably a lot. The past can be a lot more painful. I'm right? sure. And maybe wanting to not acknowledge that or, or relive it is obviously a, a choice but i think it was interesting how she did frame that and say it's you know i i haven't even changed anything on facebook and i, I thought it was interesting that she said a lot of people would be able to c connect the dots and i thought nah <laughs> some people will not be able to do that they'll be like who is this person and why are they on liv's page and you know i mean i can actually see people doing that but, you know, I, and she talked about her privilege, which I also think was important for everybody to know. It's not always easy. You know, she had not a fully supportive family in the beginning, uh, and definitely military is a, is a tough gig to transition, especially with this policy being stopped and started and stopped and started and all of that. But there's still some privilege there that maybe eased her path a little bit. And I'm glad that she she understood that and, and really wants to advocate for um, others as well. Yeah, I think it's a really cool perspective that she's able to see the privilege that she once had that she had to give up to transition. Um, you know, I think it it makes visible what is invisible to most people. Um, you know, and, and certainly her saying that on our podcast isn't going to make it visible for a bunch of people who cannot see their own privilege. But I just think it was really neat to hear that, that that she able that she is able to see that now and, and can speak from both sides of it. Um, interesting. Right. How she and now I think, sees the women's exactly. side. <laughs> I, and I, I'll, you know, I've always I always said in class, I think trans folks are the most evolved people because they have walked both sides uh, legitimately. And I haven't, 
you know, I don't, I don't know what that looks like or feels like. Um, and I, I find that fascinating. I just do. But that's why I said <laughs> that was kind of a step down, wasn't it? When you went from, you know, male to female, <laughs> she goes, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so it was just, it's an interesting perspective. I also thought it was cool um, when she was talking about how we don't see a lot of trans masculine yes. people, you know, represented. Now, like in my own life with my students, I actually know more trans males than I know trans females. Um, but, but they're, yeah, they're not, it's not something that you're seeing in the public, in the media. And, um, and I thought that her ideas about, you know, people who are trans women grew up with the privilege and, and, maybe just have a, a different way of going about the world because of how they grew up compared to to being born uh, in the female body and then transitioning to male later you grow up with the with the ideals of what women and girls should be which which is very different and, and it changes how you go out into the world once you be transition into being male and I that was something I had never really thought much about, but I thought it was really interesting to um, just to think about and to look at. Which just solidifies the fact that we should try to raise our children as gender neutral as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, no boy and girl colors and no boy and girl clothes and no boy and girl jobs. <laughs> and let's just work on that. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways and the textbook written by me, Dr. Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with the mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens and preteens. Textbooks used in schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we are always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, or to make a donation, please visit us at lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S.us. This is Dr. B. And Mandy Johnson wishing you well. Be sure to catch all of our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're even on iHeartRadio. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions. Johnson weighs in. <laughs>